Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Alright, I think I'll have to start off with this message by saying, if you are listening online <laughs> and you didn't hear the sermon this afternoon, listen to that message first before you listen to this one. Uh, Pastor Murray spoke on 1 Corinthians 13 and 14. I'm going to be speaking on 1 Corinthians 15. And this is a message that I actually was planning to do during the feast, but instead decided to give my Bible study spot to Pastor Ramakan so that he could deal with the topic there. And then I decided I would do it now, not knowing that Deacon Jan would speak on 1 Corinthians 12. In fact, I spoke on 1 Corinthians 12 with the eldership, the blessing of the eldership, and Deacon Jan spoke about the gifts in the membership. 1 Corinthians 12 is the base scripture. Then Pastor Murray spoke on 1 Corinthians 13 and 14, and now I want to speak on 1 Corinthians 15. So uh, it's not us. Jesus Christ is leading this congregation. And let's, let's not see men, let's see Christ. But this is a marvelous passage, 1 Corinthians 15. And it's a passage that comes to us because of the rebels in Corinth. If there were not rebels, if there were not mischievous people in Corinth fighting against Paul, he would not have to expound on the resurrection the way he does here in 1 Corinthians 15. So it's amazing how the devil tries to interfere with God's people, but God just uses it to bless his people. And, and that's what we see here. This chapter 15 we should really think of as a bookend. So what happens is the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, opens with Paul having heard about divisions in the congregation. And then the rest of the letter, he's answering questions that the Corinthians had for him. So he's saying, you know, now concerning this, concerning that, and he's answering the questions. So it opens with a question that they didn't ask. It's just something that he heard, that there were divisions in the, in the congregation. Then he addresses their questions. And then 1 Corinthians 15, on the resurrection, they didn't ask. In fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 12, he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So this is something that he heard them say, and he's addressing it. So we see these bookends. He opens with what he heard, he addresses their questions, and he closes with what he heard. And it's really quite a tapestry that he, he weaves together here. In fact, I haven't had a chance to fully study it, but they had these questions of Paul, and the order with which he answers them, I think, is designed. I think he's not answering the questions in the order that they were asked. He's answering them in a specific order to lead them to his conclusion, which is the resurrection. The resurrection is a big issue, or was a big issue, for Corinth because of the Greek philosophy that they held. Now let's just get an appreciation for this by looking at Acts 17. So the Greeks, not just Plato, but many of them, believed that the body was, it was material, and corrupt, and that the soul was immortal and perfect, and it was imprisoned by the body, and that on death, the soul would be released from its prison. But while it inhabited the body, some believed that whatever they did with their body doesn't matter. Others believed that it did matter, and the body had to be as pure as the soul, and so you had to abstain from everything. So this was the Greek philosophy. And Either way, what they really held on to was the immortality of the soul. So in Acts 17, verse 30, the Greeks are introduced to the resurrection. And you can see here how they respond. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooks, this is Paul speaking, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all 
by raising him from the dead. So this is the first time they're hearing about the resurrection, that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And this word mocked means to jeer. They were, they were beside themselves with, with, uh, with anger that they would speak of resurrecting from the dead. But others said, we will hear about, we will hear you again on this matter. So it was a shocking matter to the Greeks to hear about the resurrection from the dead. And this, this deep-rooted belief in the immortality of the soul and the futility of the body affects the Corinthians. So we have to see this correspondence that Paul is having with the Corinthians with this as context. And you'll remember that, in fact, Pastor Murray mentioned it, there were some real sexual problems in the congregation. So there was incest, uh, some were going to prostitutes, as they do in Corinth. And then even those that were married were not engaging in sex were not engaging in sex at all. Because they felt that, well, the body is, is corrupt. So I've got to try to be away from my body and live this spiritual life. And so they were abstaining from sexual relations in the marriage. He also speaks in the book on eating. And again, this is all to do with bodily functions. And understanding the body is critical to understanding the letter that, or the exchange that Paul is having with the Corinthians. Because it culminates, understanding the physical body, culminates in understanding the church as the body of Christ. So he's, he's answering their questions and he's, he's building them up to get them to the point where they understand that if they don't see that Christ has been resurrected and the spirit functions inside a body, there's no such thing as a disembodied spirit. And that's what the Greeks had to get their head around. That the body, or the soul, and the body are one. So in the Hebrew, they would speak of the nephesh. Nephesh. And it's just physical life. The, the, the nephesh that sins, it shall die. In Hebrew, they speak of the uh, suke, or the psyche. And the psyche that sins, it shall die. So it's the same thing here, that they need to understand the soul or the psyche, it can die, it's not immortal. And it cannot be disembodied. And that's why he's teaching them that when they are resurrected, they are resurrected into a body. There's no such thing as a disembodied soul. And that's what they had to get their head around, because they have to understand Christ has been resurrected, and his body is the church. So that's why they need to understand how the gifts operate, because Christ is manifesting himself in the body. So let's uh, just see a little bit of context by going to 1 Corinthians 6. And verse 19, <clears throat> this is after dealing with the, the sexual problems in the congregation, because they believed the body didn't matter. Or do you not know, verse 19, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. This is shocking to the Greek mind, because they think the body doesn't matter. And Christ is saying, the body and the spirit go hand in hand. And your body is a temple, it houses the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You can't do whatever you like with your body. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You use your body to glorify God. And in fact, he encourages the, the married people in the congregation, love one another. Use your body and glorify God. Love one another. Show the tremendous love that God has for you, for your mates, through sexual love. So it's phenomenal what he's showing them. Because the Greeks think, oh, sex is dirty and the body is dirty. And he's saying, this is how you show your mate how much God loves them. Glorify God in your body. And then he goes in 1 Corinthians 8, dealing with food. And um, emphasizing here, to be careful not to offend a brother. That you might understand that the sacrificing of meat to idols is nothing and you can eat. But if you do that and you, you jeopardize your brother's faith, you're not expressing the love of God for the body. 
Then 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So he's driving them to get this, to grasp this understanding that the church is Christ's body. And even though he's answering their questions, he's, he's leading up to this understanding that the church, that Christ is the head and the church is the body. Chapter 11 then, and verse 23. Now he's dealing with the Lord's Supper. And he says here, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So Paul received this from God, and he's now delivering it to the Corinthians. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. So again, for the Greek mind, thinking the body is nothing, the body is corrupt, Christ is saying, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, or in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, if you eat and drink without discerning the body, you eat and drink judgment on yourself. And I don't think we've ever made this as clear as it should be, but the body that we are discerning is the church. The Philippians understood that the church is collective, and they were working as a community. The Corinthians didn't get this. The Corinthians are hyper-individualistic. They're just thinking of themselves. And even though they have the Holy Spirit, and they have the gifts of the Holy Spirit, as Pastor Murray was saying in his sermon, they're without love, they're manifesting these gifts egotistically and selfishly, thinking it's for themselves. And he's saying, whoa, whoa. If you dare come to the Passover, and you take the emblems, and you are driven by ego, not discerning that Christ has been resurrected, and he is the head of the body. And you don't understand that your brother, your sister, are housing the spirit, the very spirit of Christ. And you're not discerning the body. You're, you're fighting against one another. There's all kinds of divisions. And then you take the Lord's Supper. You're bringing damnation on yourself. To the point where he says... This is why many are sickly and are dying. So this culminates in getting them to understand that their divisiveness is causing them to die off. Causing them to be sick and to die off. So he says here now in verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. And I've spoken to Pastor Murray and to Deacon Jan. This is called the agape meal. So it's a meal that they have, and when they finish the meal, then they have the Passover ceremony. And that's something that we're going to be looking at this year, that we should come together and have an agape meal. And it's, it's a meal during which the, the congregation expresses love for one another. And there's no division in the body. And then they have the Passover. And that was a custom that somehow fell out of favor, but it's what the early church did. And that's what he's addressing here. That they're coming together for the meal. And what's happening is the rich come early because they don't have to work. So they come early, they put on a nice spread, lots of wine, and they fill themselves to the full. The poor who have to work and can't come till the end of the day, by the time they get there, all the food is gone. And in fact, some of the, some of the uh, wealthier, they're, they're actually drunk. And he's, he's correcting them and saying here in verse 33, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Now, the only reason you would wait for one another is if you discern the Lord's body. The poorest member may have the gift of prophecy, may have the greatest gift. And when you, when you respect that Christ is operating within the body of each member, you'll, have, you'll honor one another. 
and you'll wait for one another. So he says, you know, if, you have to, if you're that hungry, eat at home first. And that way when you come, you don't have to be eating before everybody else gets there. So wait for one another, come together, eat together. And eating is a special ceremony of fellowship that we do with one another. So we're looking after the physical body, but it has spiritual implications. And, and those brethren that hear that, for example, with the potluck meal that we're having, they're feeding the body, but it has huge spiritual implications that we're enabling the body to unite. And so there's a lot here, you'll see in Corinthians, there's a lot around sex, and there's a lot around food, bodily functions, because Paul wants them to understand the body matters. The soul and the body are one. And there's no such thing as a disembodied soul. And we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 15 that immediately upon the resurrection, they're given a body. We'll see that. Quickly, uh, chapter 12, verse 1. So he says here, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Then dropping down to verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. This is exactly the way it is with Christ. There's one body with many members. Verse 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. He just keeps hammering them, hammering them with this notion that the body matters. And if you, if you, if you don't grasp at a human level what your body means, then you'll never grasp what the community means. You'll never understand that Christ is actually the head of the church, that he's alive and he's leading the church, sorry, and the church is his body. And we all manifest different gifts as we express Christ's mind and spirit. Verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And again, uh, I'm going to refer to Deacon Jan's sermon on the gifts, something that we really, truly have to digest. Every single one of us here who have God's Spirit also have at least one gift. At least. And it is that gift housed in our body, or it's our, the Spirit housed in our body that wants to express the gift that edifies the body. And we have to figure it out. And we have to have this communal perspective. That we are put in this body by God's will. We could be anywhere God wants us here. And he wants us here to express. He wants us here for a reason. He's configured us in this precise way to express his love. Again, love. So the, 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 the gift is powered by love in a body. I, I have to use my body. And eternally, we will have a body. Eternally, we will have a body. God has a body. Christ has a body. We will have a body eternally. And, and Paul is answering these questions for the Corinthians, but he keeps driving and building up to this culmination of the church as a body. Let's now go to 1 Corinthians 15. And actually, just before I begin then, so that's all context. And, well, let me just read this last passage in um, verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 12. If one member suffers, so right now we have Rosalia, who's suffering with gout. If one member suffers, we all suffer. Because it's, it's, it's a body, if I stub my toe, my whole body is in pain. So the whole body is in pain if Rosalia is in pain. We all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So we're, we are one body. And we have to break out of this hyper-individualistic thinking that we get from this society as the Corinthians got from their version of Las Vegas. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So we are the body. Individually we are members of this collective body. So that's all the context then that Paul is driving building up to this crescendo that even individually you're members of one body and then getting them to understand that love is what powers the body and the greatest gift is the gift that makes the other members great. 
So if I have the gift of prophecy, it's not to make me great. I have the gift of prophecy to make everybody else greater than me. That's how God works. So he wants all of that understanding. And then he brings it now to a, a very, very powerful conclusion in 1 Corinthians 15. So just before we begin in 1 Corinthians 15, any questions or comments on the context that we're going into the chapter with? So let's uh, read a, a bit of this passage and then we can stop again. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, and, and you've got to get the tone of Paul here. Uh, this is something that is so fundamental, and there are some, I say mischievous. Am I pronouncing that right or is it mischievous? Mischievous. Okay, I think my mother used to say mischievous. That's <laughs> a Jamaican way of talking. Okay. Uh, so there's some mischievous brethren, and I shouldn't call them brethren, there are some false brethren who are causing mischief in Corinth. And Paul, for some reason, he leaves this to the end. If it was me, I would come guns blazing and start off, what do you mean you're denying the resurrection? But he leaves it to the end and addresses, first of all, says there's division. Then he goes and he addresses all this immorality and issues and, and division, arguments that they're having, corrects them on various things brings them to understand that the gifts that they've been given, they've been given to express love for the body. And even again in marriage, to express love. And with uh, food, to express love. It's all about the expression of love. But we're all members of one body. Now he comes to 1 Corinthians 15. I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand. The very clear gospel that I came and I preached, you received it, and that's what you're standing in. And by which you are being saved. It is this very gospel that your uh, Pastor Murray spoke about, we're in the way. So they're in the way, and this is what is saving them. But there's an if, proviso. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you. Don't let this go. When I preach these words of life to you, hold on to them, unless you've believed in vain. It's can't that. It's quite possible that I've preached and, and it was in vain for you. For I delivered to you as of first importance. This is the most important thing that I delivered to you. And it's what I also received. I'm giving you what I received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. This is the gospel that I preached to you, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So I'm not telling you, I'm not making this up. I received it from Christ himself, and the very thing is in the scriptures. So I'm telling you what's in the scriptures. Christ died for our sins, he was buried, he was dead for three days, and then he was raised up. Now, he really wants to make this clear to them. That Christ lived after he died. So he now is going to recount for them six appearances that Christ made after his death. So six different times he appeared. And he starts now in verse 5. So he, he was raised on the third day. And that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter. This is his, uh, not Greek, but what's the other? Aramaic. This is his Aramaic name. So first he appeared to Cephas. What's one? Then to the twelve. Second appearance. So he died, and he appeared to Peter. Then he appeared to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Over 500 brothers saw him at one time, most of whom are still alive. So if you don't believe this, over 500 brothers saw him at once, most of them are still alive. Go and ask them. Not two witnesses, over 500 witnesses, and then most of them are still alive. And then notice this, though some have fallen asleep. He doesn't say, though some have died. He says, though some have fallen asleep. When you sleep, you wake up. So he's driving home here that Christ died and was raised. 
500 brethren saw him, most of whom are still alive, so you can talk to them. There's a few who have fallen asleep, meaning they're going to wake up again. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, the sixth time, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And, and did he ever. So that's still weighing on his mind. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. So he said to them earlier, you know, you're, you're standing fast in this gospel, through which you're being saved, unless you've believed in vain. Then he says of himself that he's unworthy to be called an apostle, but by God's grace, God's grace was toward him, and it was not in vain. So you guys got to—you have to decide: Are you believing this or not? I'm telling you, God made me an apostle. I don't deserve to be an apostle. I'm the least of the apostles, but His grace toward me was not in vain. I'm taking this seriously, and Paul's whole life is about the resurrection. So he has—he has, he has uh, structured his entire life, where he had structured his entire life to achieve the resurrection. And that's why he's saying, you know what? When I got this grace, it wasn't in vain. I'm striving to be in that first resurrection. Don't know what you guys are doing. I hope it's not in vain. So he's worried about them. Because I'd say there's false brethren that are penetrating the Corinthian congregation. On the contrary, so what's not an on the contrary, I worked harder than any of the other apostles. So yeah, I was a criminal. I, I, I consented to the death of Christians, but when God's grace came to me, it wasn't. In, I took this very seriously, so much so that I worked harder than any of them. And I think the sense here is, than all of them put together. That, that's how hard he really uh, worked at this. Though it was not I, so he's not taking credit, but the grace of God that is with me. So God gave him a special ministry, and the grace enabled him to do what he did. Whether then it was I or they, so whether it was me or the other apostles, so we preach, and so you believed. We never deviated from this. We came and we taught that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. And this is what all of us have preached. Now, he goes to the next section. He's going to give them seven hypothetical statements. We're going to look at seven if statements to consider the possibility that maybe Christ wasn't resurrected. Verse 12. First one. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And so the, the, the message here is that uh, when the body dies, it dies, and the soul is released. And there's no such thing as resurrection. You go straight to heaven or, or, or whatever the perfect, perfect state is for the Greek philosophers. So if he is proclaimed as raised from the dead, and you're calling yourselves Christians, and this is all of us preach that Christ is raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Okay, so if, if resurrection is impossible, if we're saying that that's ridiculous and it's impossible, and they're mocking and jeering, then that means that Christ, it's impossible for Christ to have been raised from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Because that's what we're preaching, that Christ is alive. And so if he's not raised from the dead, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. So these false brethren that have infiltrated the congregation and are teaching that there is no resurrection, and you're buying this, you believe in God, you believe in Christ, you believe in Christ's kingdom, you also believe that there's no resurrection, and you're just so confused, you haven't put the system of doctrines together. The doctrines are a system that's snapped together in only one way. And you're, you're not able to put them together. You can house 
Yeah, there's no resurrection. Yes, Christ is Lord. Paul is saying, help me understand. Because if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is in vain. Our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Because all of our preaching is the resurrected Christ. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. He just keeps harping on this. Because this, this blows apart the doctrine that there is no resurrection of the dead. And if Christ has not raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So you're calling yourself Christian, you think you're on the way to salvation, but you don't believe in the resurrection. Well, if there's no resurrection, then you're in your sins. There's no release for you. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And remember, he told them that brethren were dying because they were not discerning the Lord's body. And they were keeping the Passover and bringing damnation on the, on the church. Brethren were dying, and now he's saying, you know what? Those brethren that have died, they've perished. If there's no resurrection. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And most people will read this scripture and apply it to Christians today. And I think that, I, I would contend that this doesn't really apply to all Christians today. Okay? Because Christians today, they have big screen TVs, high-speed internet, iMac computers, and so, you know, they're living quite a good life. And there's other people halfway around the world that are more to be pitied for the life that they're leading. Paul is talking about himself. He has completely thrown himself into a way of life, and the apostles, and the true Christians in this time, who believe in the resurrection and have given up on the present life. They have completely put themselves in harm's way to do God's work. So if there's no resurrection and all they're doing is facing lions and, and persecution and torture and, and ridicule and being spat upon, that's the life that they're comparing to say, you know what, if there's no resurrection, we are of all men most to be pitied. And I think for us, we want to be able to apply this to ourselves for the sacrifices that we make. We need to make sure that we are totally bought into the resurrection and the new life. That's what we're striving for. And, and people are going to say, like, wow, you could have had X, Y, or Z. Why would you turn away from that? Well, that might take me away from God. And so I'm turning away from that in order to have my life with the resurrection, with, the, with those saints that are resurrected. So I'll just stop here again and just ask if there are any comments or questions or thoughts on this. Again, what he's doing here is he's just driving home the fact that the doctrines all tie together. And you can't, you can't say you're a Christian and then believe that there's no resurrection. He's just showing them that your faith is completely vain because the resurrection is fundamental to our belief system. Brother Rick. Uh, yeah, Adrian. Uh, the first uh, 18 there says, Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, if Christ is not risen. Yes. Uh, and, and you were saying that they might be the ones that weren't uh, uh, obeying Christ, obeying the law. Uh, no, that the church as a whole, the Corinthian church, was not discerning the Lord's body. Because of that, many were falling asleep and dying. So those that died, it doesn't mean that they were the ones that were not discerned. They could have been the faithful brethren. But, we, but they have lost. There are brethren that are in the congregation that they have lost. And the resurrection is saying to them, they've just fallen asleep. Those are true brethren. They will be raised again. But when they are raised again, are they arrested uh, boards for what they did? Well, I wouldn't say they did anything. Let's put it this way. You're a faithful brother in Christ. Okay? We're all unfaithful. We're all full of selfish ambition. You really, truly understand the gospel. And you're the one person among us that is truly living 
the way God would want you to live. You get sick. We're praying for you. God doesn't hear our prayers. You die. We've lost you. Paul is saying, if there's no resurrection, he's gone forever. We're saying, well, how could that be? He was the most faithful among us. Well, there is a resurrection, and you will will see him again. Now, the rest of us, we've got to figure out, we've got to get our act together here. Okay? Okay. Any other thoughts or comments on this so far? Okay. Now, so first he says, if Christ hasn't been raised, we're wasting our time. Now, he's absolutely categorical in the fact that Christ has been raised. Verse 22. But if, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So, so in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. There's no doubt here. Remember, Paul actually spent time with him. So, and the other, over 500 brethren saw him after he had died and was resurrected. So, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And just quickly look at Colossians 1. Keep your finger here. Uh, Colossians 1 and verse 18. And this is also in, in the book of Revelation. Verse 18 of Colossians 1. And he is the head of the body, the church. Christ is alive. And he is directing the church. The church is the church isn't we're just not a bunch of people who get together on Sabbath and do our own thing. Christ is alive, and he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And uh, my speaking to my aunt this week, she was asking me if I'm born again. And I said, Well, that's something we'd have to study. And she said, there's no need to study. I'm born again, you have to be born again. I didn't engage. But here, Christ is the firstborn from the dead. So we have this life. We die, we go into the grave. And what the resurrection tells us is, there's a second birth. We get to be born again. And Christ is the firstborn from the dead. That in everything, he might be preeminent. So go back to 1 Corinthians 15, 20. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Four, so now he, so, so we had seven, uh, there was six if statements, six, sorry, seven if statements, one truth statement, Christ has been raised from the dead. And then we get four, four statements. So now he's going to follow it up with four reasons why. Okay. First one, verse 21. Four. As by a man came death. So there was this nephesh called Adam and his wife Eve. And they made a decision that caused death to come upon all humans. So every single human being you see anywhere on the planet ever, every single one of them, every single one of us, has the death sentence over us. We, we just can't escape it. And that came to us by Adam. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Then the second fourth statement. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And that's all. Every single human being that dies, every single one of them, will be made alive. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to be made alive to eternal life, but death is to everybody, resurrection is to everybody as well. But, here it is here in verse 23, each in his own order. So there's an order to this. That's why Christ is the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And the scripture says we're a kind of first fruits. So, so Christ is that initial wave sheaf offering, for the, har- the spring harvest, and then we are the spring harvest. And then there's the fall harvest. So each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. So Christ is coming back, and those of us who belong to him will be resurrected at that time, or changed. 
Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. So Christ comes, he establishes his kingdom, he reigns over everything, and then he delivers the kingdom to the Father. After, so he does this after destroying every rule and every authority and power. The third four. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So death is this strange phenomenon that nobody can escape. We don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know how it's going to happen. All we know is that it's going to happen. In some cases you hear a newborn baby died. Sometimes a baby in the womb dies. Some people live to 115 years old. Then they die. And everything in between. And we have no idea when it's going to happen. And yet, this, this whole process that God has in motion is that Christ, through Christ, everybody's going to come back to life. And then this thing that we call death will be destroyed. And it will no longer have any power over anybody. Everybody will, if that's alive then, will live forever. And there will be no such concept, no such phenomenon as death. It will be gone. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So there's this process that we're working out. Adam came along, and because of Adam, death reigns supreme. But the kingdom is coming. Christ is the king of that kingdom. And he will reign over everything. And even the supremacy of death will be destroyed. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's obvious that he, God the Father, is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And I know we've had some discussion in the past about, uh, you know, do we put too much emphasis on Christ? Scripture is very clear here. Every single thing will be under Christ. And then Christ will put everything under the Father. And it's the Father who put everything under Christ. So obviously, in putting everything under Christ, he's not putting himself under Christ. So we cannot, we, we simply, let me say it like this, we cannot give Christ enough praise. We, it's impossible. You could spend the rest of your life praising Christ with all of your might. It wouldn't be enough. And that doesn't mean that you're somehow slighting God the Father. That, that, that's by God's design. That everything would be under Christ. And obviously, he's accepting himself. Now, when all things are subjected to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the Father, who put all things in subjection under him. That God may be all in all. This is just a beautiful plan that God is working out, but it's a process, and there's structure. And the way that, again, Pastor Murray was talking about love today, the way that this process works with agape is nobody is trying to exalt themselves. Agape is all about others, and blessing and helping others, and that's the process that we see here. Any, any questions or thoughts? 29. Now this is a bit tricky. So, I won't be taking any questions on this one. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Okay, so remember we said Corinthians, we have half a conversation. We can't really fully understand it. This is one of those scriptures that, I, I don't know, I just have to say it. But what I can say is this. Paul is not baptizing people on behalf of the dead. Nor is he authorizing it. He's just saying, I know in Corinth, you've got people who are baptizing, getting baptized on behalf of people that have died who were not baptized. So I know you're doing that. He doesn't say he's doing it, because notice in verse 30, so he says, why are people doing this? Why are they doing this? In verse 30 he says, why are we, what we do, is we put ourselves in danger every hour. 
So Paul isn't baptized, getting baptized for the dead. Nor any of the apostles. What they are doing is putting themselves in danger every hour. But because you have people, and maybe it's the very people who are saying there is no resurrection. And so Paul's saying, well, why are they getting baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead have perished. It doesn't make any sense. And why are we in danger every hour? And this again is why he's saying we are most men to be pitied if there is no resurrection. Because our life is just full of danger. Every single hour we're in danger. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. This is real. And Paul, when he wrote to the Philippians, he says, I'm ready to be martyred. And if that's the case, that's, I hope I can come and see you again. But I think I'm going to be martyred. And either way, that's okay. And that's the life that Paul lived. So he dies every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And this was some of the Christians in, in Corinth actually had this philosophy. That the body doesn't matter eat, drink, do whatever we want. We can be drunk, we can be immoral, because it's just the body. And then when we die, the, the soul is released and the soul is, is pure and immortal. And then he says this, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. There are false brethren among you. You need to discern who these people are. And don't keep company with them. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. So this is a, a congregation that has brethren that are confused, filled with false doctrine. False brethren are teaching this false doctrine. They're competing with Paul, and he's saying, stop it. Get your doctrine right, and stop sinning. Some are ignorant of God. There are brethren among you, I shouldn't call them brethren, there are people among you, who are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. Now, verse 35. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Now, they're not asking this innocently. It's not like scratching their head and saying, well, how, how are the dead raised? This is mischief. They're saying, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come with? Okay, so there's this sailor, and he falls in the ocean, and he's eaten by piranhas. How is he resurrected? And they're, they're, they're causing doubt by these questions. And Paul has heard of it. So he's saying, okay, there's some among you that are asking, how are the dead raised? You imbecile. You fool. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So, so God is not incapable because someone has died. And now God is saying, oh dear, now what? It's, it's how everything works. He says, you foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be. So you're sowing, but you're not sowing if I'm sowing corn, I don't sow corn. What I sow are seeds. The seeds die, and the corn appears. Or the carrots, or the potatoes. What you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen. And to each kind of seed its own body. So this is a metaphor now that Paul is saying, like, and this is an agricultural society. So some of these very people who are saying, like, come on, what kind of body? They're probably farmers. And they're probably sowing seed. And, and Paul is saying, these guys are idiots. The very seed that they sow, they know the seed is not what they're hoping for. The seed will die and something else will sprout according to God's design. Same with us. For all flesh is not the same, but there is one kind for humans 
another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. This is profound insight that, that we would never get if we didn't have these false brethren confusing people in Corinth. That Paul goes into a level of detail here that he goes in nowhere else in the, in the scripture. So we're corruptible now, right? Well, some of the, Rosalia has gout. This is a perishable body. But even with gout, she is sowing an imperishable body. So it's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. And this uh, natural body is soma psychikos. The natural, nefesh. Natural body. We use this natural body to sow what's called a soma pneumaticos. So we use soma psychikos to sow soma pneumaticos. And think of a pneumatic. Uh, the power of a pneumatic machine, the power of the air. In fact, quickly go to John 3. John 3. And verse 3, speaking to Nicodemus, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And we know that Christ is the firstborn from the dead. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, that's baptism, and the Spirit, that's when we're changed, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So we will not be changed if we're not baptized. So we have to be baptized to receive the Holy Spirit, begin the conception, and then when Christ returns, we are resurrected or changed. Otherwise, we will not see the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. So this is soma psychikos. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And that word spirit is pneuma. So this is soma pneumaticos. This is the, the air body. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Notice this. The wind, pneuma, blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So this is the soma pneumaticos. That when we have this pneumatic body, it's like the breeze. Like we pass somebody and they feel the breeze, but they don't know where it came from and they don't know where it's going. So is everybody that is born with the Soma Pneumaticos. So again, he's driving home to this Greek mind. There is no such thing as a disembodied soul. Your soul has a Psychikos Soma right now. And when you are changed, you will have a Pneumaticos Soma. But there's no such thing as a disembodied soul. The soul works with the body. It, 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 the soul and the body are one. And they, he needs them to understand this because Christ and his body are one. Back to 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll just bring this to a close. So brethren, we don't know what this body looks like. We know that it's pneumatic, the pneumaticos. But there are different levels of glory. The glory of the sun is different from the glory of the moon, which is different than the glory of the stars. 
Wheat is different from corn, which is different than tomatoes. So we are all seeds, and what we do with this body, we are sowing our future body. And the glory of that body, it's going to be glorious, we don't know yet what exactly that means. But it's, it's pneumatic. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. In Greek we say nephesh, in, uh, sorry, in Hebrew we say nephesh, in Greek we say psychikos. The first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. It is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. The natural is the seed. And then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And, and Christ spent, uh, Paul spent time with Christ. So he fully understood. Christ could just appear, disappear. He, Christ was glorified. No doubt he saw that. He put his entire weight, his entire life, into this. Because he understood, this is true. This body is, is just a seed. It's just how we sow the next body. And what he was striving for was the next body. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood, same thing that Christ said, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. This is, I, I just, words fail me. Words fail me. Th this is what life is all about. That there is a coming kingdom, we will not be disembodied. We will, we will have bodies. We will, have, we will look like human beings because we, we are in the image of God. Just that our bodies will be different. They will be soma pneumaticos. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the, imper when the, perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death, and this is Thanatos, means the extinction of life. The extinction of life is swallowed up in victory. No more will there be the possibility of life being extinguished. Every body that is alive in this time, it's eternal life. Everybody, when we look at each other, it's eternal. There's no such concept as extinguishing life. It's swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. All of this now comes to this conclusion. Not just chapter 15, but all of the preceding letter comes now to this conclusion. As we grasp this doctrine, therefore, therefore, my deeply loved brothers, be steadfast. Believe in the resurrection. Christ is alive. He's the head of the church. You will be resurrected or changed into this soma pneumaticos. And when you have this new body, you will be eternal. You will be glorious. This is what we strive for. So if you know this, don't, don't allow people to uh, move you away from this understanding. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. This is what Paul did. He said he was in danger every single hour. He did not hold back at all because he met with Christ and he understood so pneumaticos. And Christ said, you too will be so pneumaticos. And so now he's striving. Cor Corinth, Corinth is a church that anybody in their right mind would give up on. Just give up. It's a disaster. Paul did not give up. 
he was just committed to seeing them in God's kingdom because he understood what this is. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So a very, very powerful conclusion. After telling them that I hope, you know, we, we've preached this to you, the resurrection. I hope you haven't heard in vain. Now, I've been made an apostle. I'm telling you, it's not in vain. I'm laboring more than everybody else. If you grasp this, your labor is not in vain. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.